I haven't said anything yet. I have to tell a little story. I was a student at Union College, and uh, some of you ever heard of, have you heard of Union College? That's the institution that trains the leaders for the Adventist church. And uh, so I went to one of the basketball games on a Saturday night, and the football team was terrible, and they had just elected, appointed a new coach. And this man was being introduced at the halftime of the basketball game. His name was Pete Elliott. He came from Michigan with a lot of good credentials. And everyone was excited, the student body, everybody was excited about having this new coach that maybe this was the beginning of a new era for the football team in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, the Cornhuskers, the famous Cornhuskers. So they gave him a good introduction, standing ovation, standing ovation. He walks out there in the middle of the basketball court and he looks around and he says, wow. He said, and to think, we haven't even won a game yet. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to be here on the, the sawdust trail. I've heard a lot about this camp meeting. In fact, I just heard about it. The last time I really heard uh, much about it was a month ago when I was in Vietnam. Can you believe that? In Vietnam. I'm getting emails in Vietnam reminding me about my appointments here. And, uh, and they said, you don't want to miss this camp meeting. It's a, it's a good one. And I've heard a lot about it. I know you're going to have a wonderful week. And we, we pray that, that our ministry here with you uh, during these next few days will be, a, will be a blessing to you. That's why we're here. And I want you to meet my sweetheart, my companion, of over 60 years. Pat, can you stand? We can see you. Uh, I shouldn't tell you folks this, but Pat and I got married at 19 and 18. You know, they did a lot of that there, you know, 60 years ago, didn't they? Uh, we were 19 and 18. I met her our senior year of academy. I'd come in from Singapore. And it was my last year at Sunnydale Academy in Missouri, and uh, I saw this pretty little gal, and I said, wow, there's something special about her. So I dated some other girls, had a good time, but boy, before the end of the year, I made sure that uh, she was my, my girl, and uh, we went on to Union College, and after one year, we got married. And uh, there's a reason for it, and I'll give you a quick history on it. My parents had just been transferred, were being transferred to Cape Town, Africa. South Africa. My sister and her husband were missionaries in Japan. Now you would know who that family is if I give you one name. Dwight. Nelson. All right, got it. Dwight's my nephew. So, uh, so Barbara and her husband were in Japan. My parents are in Cape Town. I'm all alone in Lincoln, Nebraska. Do you know what my mom said? She said, are you sure this is the girl you're going to marry? They, they were in love with her already. Yes, mother, this is the girl I'm going to. When do you plan to get married? I said, probably before our senior year we'll get married. Well, she says, if you and Pat want to get married this next summer, she says, that's fine with me. 
And I'm saying to myself, that's like throwing gas on an open flame. (laughs) And uh, I said, what's dad going to say? She says, don't worry about dad. I'll take care of him. (laughs) And uh, I found out what she did. Uh, He blew a a gasket when she came back that night and told him what she had said. Well, Well, Ralph, you need my dad's name is Ralph also. Three generations of Ralph in the family. She said, he said, well, Ralph said, uh, Mitty, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he said, they're just kids, 1918. She said, well, Ralph, how old were you when we got married? He said, Mitty, I was 20. She says, yes, you turned 20 the month before. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the, the nub of it, I left home when I was 12. With a younger brother as a dependent, we sailed from Shanghai, I'm from, from San Francisco to Shanghai, where we went into a boarding academy. My parents had to go to Korea. We could not go, so we went to the boarding academy at Farishan Academy in Shanghai. I was in the seventh grade. My brother was in the fifth grade, and he was my dependent. What do you think of that? At 12 years of age. So my mom used to say, our son became a man at 12. And in a way, that's true. So God has been good, and we have a great deal to be thankful for. And it's nice to see all of you here today, and we're going to have a good time sharing some experiences. I've just told some of the brethren before we started that the Pacific Press has been asking me for about the last 10 or 12 years to do a book, to write a book on my ADRA experiences. I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. I'm verbal. For me to sit down and write it out would take forever, and it just wouldn't be good. So I could either dictate it or tell the stories. So when they called and said, we want you to just tell address stories, I said, oh, the makings of a book. So they're going to be taping all this. We'll be sending the material to the Pacific Press. They'll transcribe it, and if they think it's worthwhile, they'll put it into book form. And, uh, but you're going to hear it before anyone gets to read it. So we'll share some of these experiences with you this week. And some of these stories are stories that I've never, I've never told. Experiences that have happened to me. I'm sharing with you what, what I experienced, what touched my heart, what touched my life. And uh, I've broken it into four sessions. And today's topic is, please... Can somebody help me? Tomorrow's topic is too many for breakfast. Thursdays is the good, the bad. What's the last word? The ugly. ugly. And I'm going to be sharing with you the impressions that I've had meeting with some of the world's most prominent leaders, the big people and the little people that have touched my life. And then finally, on Friday, the beggar and the shake. The beggar and the shake. So we're going to divide this up, and I'll be uh, telling stories that will will fit in with all of these uh, these, uh, topics that I have. But I'd like to have you take your Bibles. Where every morning we're going to read one passage, dealing with the life of Christ. So if you turn to the book of Matthew, And uh, these are familiar words, but I want us to focus on this every day because it reveals to us 
The mission and the ministry of Christ. That's the ministry and the mission for each of us today. In some way or another. Whatever our capacity, whatever our abilities may be. So if you'll follow along as I read. Verse 35, Matthew 9. Chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9. I'll give you a few moments to find that. You might want to underscore this if you haven't in your Bibles. Get that red pencil out or that yellow marker. Important passage. Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was, what? Moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I like the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the scriptures, he has a very unique way of putting it, this passage. It says here that when he saw the multitudes, his heart broke. His heart broke. How tender are our hearts today? Have we become calloused to the plight of people that may live around us or close to us or around the world who are in such difficult straits? Please, please, can somebody help me? The faint words of a dying girl. There had been a terrible earthquake. The apartment building in which she was living had collapsed. And she was pinned by a huge concrete pillar that had fallen on her and had crushed her legs so she was unable to move. In the basement of this apartment complex, totally dark, black, no light. And she couldn't hear any voices. So she was pretty sure that there was no one that had survived. And so she kept crying out, please, somebody help me. Please, can, can somebody help me? One day passed by. No help. Two days passed by. Three days passed by. Her tongue swollen, parched. Her throat is raw. She can't swallow. Her stomach is in pain. She hasn't eaten. Nothing to drink. Nothing to eat. Four days passed by. And then she hears some noise. And it sounds like heavy equipment, and it is. The big equipment's coming in, and they're beginning to bulldoze out. And she thought this was the end. Finally, there was a pause. And some of the men were beginning to crawl down the rubble to, to see if they could find any bodies in the basement area. And one of the men thought he heard a voice. And he asked everything to be quiet up above. Shut the equipment down. Please, shut the equipment down. I think I hear a voice. So everything is shut down, quiet. 
He calls out, can you hear me? Can you hear me? This very faint voice, please, somebody help me. Somebody help me. So he determined the direction, got others to come down. And they began to move the rubble away the best they could. And finally they spotted her lying there on that concrete floor with this concrete being pinned against her. It took a great deal of effort and quite a bit of time until they finally were able to get her out. Rushed her to the hospital. Her life was spared. About a year later, I was invited to come to that city to open up a rehab center. ADRA had built a rehab center for the survivors of the earthquake. When earthquake hits, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have what? Limbs that are going to be destroyed or damaged. So the rehab center was an important way uh, for us to provide assistance. We even got some experts from Loma Linda to come out and help with the instructions. And, uh, and so the rehab center was finished, and they were just beginning to start, and they were having the inauguration. So the government officials were out there. It was a big occasion. And the place was packed with people, and I was asked to, to speak. So I got up, and I talked about the calamity and how the people had rallied together to, to try to find relief and help for the people. But I said, you know, I said, we're here today to dedicate this building. I, but I said, that's glass. That's block. That's timber. I said, this is all temporary. I said, this may be here for a while, but in a few years it could be gone. I said, what really matters here is the love that we have in our hearts for the people who have suffered so terribly. And then I said, you know, the adults and the kids. And I saw this little girl, probably 11, 12 years of age, sitting on the front row. And I said, here are the people that we should be helping. So I went down there and I picked her up so that, I could, so that the audience could see who I was talking. I picked her up and immediately when I put my arms around her, I realized that I was not touching the legs with flesh and muscle, and bone, blood. False limb. I just squeezed it. And I had a hard time even going on to finish my talk, but I, but I talked about this little girl. I said, I don't know who she is, but I said, her life has been spared, and she has a, she has a new life now. I, I put her down. Afterwards, I went up and talked to her. The only survivor that she had in the family was her grandmother, who was in another town. And so they told me, they translated and they told me the story. And this is the story about Maria, the girl I just mentioned. They had rushed her to the hospital. Her legs had been so severely damaged, there was nothing they could do. And they had to amputate her legs just below the groin. And then they were able to, to fit some prosthesis on for her to stand. Abnormally tall for her age. But the sweetest girl, the prettiest little girl. And I've thought about that experience. And it's helped me to realize that the world in which you and I live today is littered with the wreckage of human suffering. Amen. 
Would you agree with that? Anywhere you look, anywhere you go, in our country, in our backyards, in our neighborhoods, in the Congo, in Bangladesh, wherever you go, you're going to see disease, destruction, death, and despair. That's a picture of our world today, isn't it? It's a picture of our world today. So uh, I want to just have that, the topic of my talk today, just sort of ring in your mind today. Think of it. When you hear that cry, please, can somebody help me? You may be the one that God is going to use to make a difference. And we can't all go overseas. We can't go to the earthquake necessarily. We cannot perhaps do what we would like to do because of our age or our physical condition. But we can all pray. We can all pray that somehow those who are suffering can receive some little sign of hope. Some sign of hope. And in some cases, perhaps, some assistance. I was elected president of ADRA in uh, 1985. Um, I was president of the Southern California Conference. Have you heard of the Southern California Conference? <laughs> Fairly near here, isn't it? We loved it there. I enjoyed that conference. We hadn't been there but five years our family was moving to the West Coast. Our parent, my parents had moved to the West Coast. And we just anticipated a number of wonderful years in Southern California. We just had a marvelous time in that conference. And they were so wonderful to us, so gracious, so, so kind and thoughtful. We just, just thought this is really, after the years that we'd spent in the mission field, we thought, wow, this is really a wonderful treat that God has given us. But you know, God has other plans, doesn't he? And sometimes they're not our plans. So the call came. And I said, no thank you. I was very happy where we were. And the call came again. And again. And the president of the division. And then the president of the general conference. And they just started, you know. Ralph, we need you. You have the overseas experience. You have the experience here in North America. You know what needs to be done. You've done this kind of work before. We need you. Please reconsider. We don't know where to turn. That's what they said. We don't know where to turn. And we struggled and we struggled. My wife and I, we weighed the pros and the cons. And Is this really what God wants us to do? Well, we haven't been here that long in Southern California. And well, will it be easier to find someone to be president of Southern California than it would be to find someone to be president of ADRA? So we wrestled with this. Finally, we were out at annual council. And the chairman of the board said, next Tuesday at 1 o'clock, our board meets and we have to have your answer at that time. And uh, so Tuesday came. I'll never forget it. Pat and I went out to the car. The meetings were on. We went out and sat in the car for several hours that morning during the noon hour. And we waited and we prayed and we waited and we prayed. And it just seemed contrary to what 
we really wanted that God was telling us, yeah, you should go. So at one o'clock we gave our word and uh, this began the, the years of service with ADRA. So I, when I met with the board, <coughs> I said to them, because ADRA had just been established and they were facing some critical issues, and there was a question as whether or not it would be able to sur would survive even. So I said to the board, I'll commit three years. I'll give you the best three years. We'll do what we can to get the thing turned around and get it on track and, and move forward. They said, fine, give us three years. Well, I'll tell you, God continued to lead us and continued to bless Hadra, and we stayed 17 years <laughs> until we retired. But, but this is prefaced because of the experience that I had some years before. We went over as missionaries. I was born in the mission field. I might as well just tell that to you if you aren't a, haven't come to that conclusion already. I was born in Korea. Now my, my sister was born in North Korea, and I was born in Seoul, the South. So we've had a civil war going on for, uh, for uh, you know, 75, 80 years. And uh, although at that time there was just one Korea, uh, Korea at that time, by the way, was under Japanese military government from 1905 until they were defeated in, in, in 45. Korea was under the domination of the Japanese. So there's no love lost among the older Koreans between <laughs> the Koreans and the Japanese. It's changed today, but the old timers, they remember every time they go by a police, uh, a police station where a Japanese guard was, they would, they would have to bow and they were forced to learn to speak, uh, to learn Japanese as well. So it was a, it was sort of an unpleasant time for the Koreans. And we were, I was born there. And then uh, in 1963, after I had been pastoral work for a, for a while, evangelism, pastoral work, and departmental work, we were called to, to go to Korea. So in 1963, we, with our four children, sailed for, uh, for Korea. We were the last, actually the last missionaries to go by ship to, to Asia. From that time on, everyone went by plane. It was much cheaper and, and much quicker. So we arrive in Korea, and I've, soon after I'm given the response of being, uh, responsibility of being the Sabbath, Sabbath school and the lay activities director of the, of the union, the Korean Union. Rapidly growing. This is after the Korean War. Now, Korea at that time was still in a very difficult situation. They had st still suffering from the, from the effects of the, of the Korean War, which just tore that country apart. And uh, so there's a lot of, the infrastructure was in terrible shape, and uh, there was a lot that needed to be done, but the church was growing. This was a time of, of, of rapid growth for the church. So we, for one of the things that we got involved in is, is aggressively was establishing a, a, a lot of vacation Bible schools. So we went into a, a real strong program of conducting vacation Bible schools all around Korea. We did training program after training program after training had thousands of our young people and others trained to conduct vac vacation Bible schools. And last year we were there, we had 250,000 children in vacation Bible schools. And that was the highest year, those next following years were the highest years for baptism because we fall from vacation Bible schools, you go right into the branch Sabbath schools. So, but then they added another responsibility. They asked me to be the director of SAWS. Any of you have any idea what SAWS is? That was the predecessor in a limited way of what ADRA was. Basically relief work. 
basically relief work. So this started during World War II. SAW started during World War II. This was done by the General Conference. And so in Korea, because of the conditions in Korea, there was always natural disasters every year. There'd be flooding and all kinds of problems, and we would get these commodities sent to us, and we'd go up there with the tarps and with food and with medicine and blankets and clothing and shoes, and we would help out thousands upon tens of thousands of people with relief work. But one of the most interesting projects that we had was to help the orphanages in Korea. Following the Korean War, there were literally hundreds of orphanages all through South Korea. You know, the church operated one. There was a lady by the name of Mrs. Grace Rue, some of you may have heard that name, who, op- uh, who ran an orphanage you know, on behalf of the Adventist Church. But we were given the assignment by the U.S. government, since the food commodities came from USAID, U.S. government, we were given food commodities to go to take to these orphanages. And so we would get wheat, and we would get, we would get oil, we would get powdered milk, things like that. Tons and tons and tons of that stuff. And, and our staff would go around to these various orphanages, and every month they would make their deliveries. At one time, you'll find this difficult to believe, at one time we had 100 orphanages that we were responsible to take assistance to. There was one orphanage in Pusan, the southernmost city of, of Korea, that was run by a Seventh-day Adventist businessman. He had over a thousand orphans in that orphanage, over a thousand. But to go there, to see those kids, and to provide assistance, that was a part of what, what inspired me in my work as, uh, as, as a leader of ADRA. I'm having a hard time keeping this... Uh, earpiece on here. Either my ears are too big or this is too small, one of the two. And, uh, and, and so then we moved to Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Pol Pot. You remember the episode? The massacre of hundreds of thousands of people in Cambodia by Pol Pot. We went into the interior. We would deliver food commodities and medicines. And then Pol Pot came in. And about one-fourth of the population of Cambodia were murdered by Pol Pot and his regime. If you wore a pair of glasses, you would probably be executed. If you were educated, you would be executed. If you were a doctor or a nurse or a teacher you're going to be on the list. Children could report their parents, and they often turned in their teachers. And there was no jury, there was no trial, there was no checking to find out what the facts are. They would just take them out and kill them. And you had the killing fields, the famous killing fields of Cambodia. Well, the people fled. By the hundreds of thousands, they fled over to the borders of Thailand. And then the churches, you remember, began involved in helping out with the people, the refugees that came over into Thailand. Well, we were involved in that. I was president of the Minnesota Conference at the time. I was asked to go over and do some relief work to help out for a period of time. And while we were there, the United Nations, the UNHCR, High Commissioner for Refugees had contacted me, knowing that I had been into Cambodia before quite a few times, 
they asked if I would be willing to go back in and make an initial assessment, initial trip to see what the true situation was. So I went into, flew into Cambodia. And when I walked down the streets of Phnom Penh, the capital, I could not believe it was the same city. It was deserted. There was hardly anybody in the city. Buildings were locked up. Didn't see anyone moving around. Hardly any vehicles on the ground. Pol Pot took the vehicles that he could find. He would smash them and stack them up in front of buildings. And just about on every corner of the street, you'd see an image of Pol Pot. He was a narcissist. And he was just making sure that everybody knew who Pol Pot was. Everywhere you went, you'd see images of Pol Pot. Unbelievable. He was gone now. And so a new government began to take form. So I went in, I met, went to meet the Minister of Health on behalf of SAWS to see what could be done. And the sewage, you go through the streets and the sewage is just stacked up three, three feet high. The stench was unbelievable. The rats were huge. You can see them just running around at night and I'm thinking, wow, these kids, these babies sleeping on the ground and having these creatures flitting around them. It was terrible. And so we entered into an agreement to provide sanitation. We would get some trucks in there and some equipment and try to help clean out the, clean out the city. And the Australian government and, and uh, SAWS Australia would provide it. But I'll never forget staying in the hotel with Bob Parrish, a young man who was with me who'd been working in Cambodia in the English language school before. We went into this old hotel, I mean this hotel that was about the only hotel in town, the elevators didn't work, single little light bulb in the room, hardly anything to eat. And I remember the first meal we sat down and they brought out some French bread. And uh, Bob looks at that bread and he says, what's this? He sees a little black speck. And he pulls that out, sets it aside, another little black speck. And all through the bread, by the time he got done with it, all he had was a little crust. And, uh, and you know what it was? Weevils. Just loaded with weevils. And, and he saw me eating it. And uh, I'd been in Asia long enough to know that something like that isn't going to kill you. And besides, I felt I needed the protein. But, but anyway, uh, uh, Bob was supposed to come back and live in, in Cambodia, but I don't think that uh, he and his wife ever uh, made it. But we did enter into an agreement. Cambodia today is a totally different story. Because of what the church has done, Adra came in immediately and began activities in, in, in Cambodia. And the church began to, to resurface. Today we have thousands of believers in Cambodia. And it's just a testament to what God can do when we are moved with compassion and endeavor to touch the lives of people in a positive way. It makes a difference. Because they begin to ask the question, why do you do this? What... What causes you to come here to our country and do this for us? And you know, in many countries, we are not permitted to do anything in the way of proselytizing. ADRA just does not get involved in that, but we can witness. We can witness, and if someone asks, we can give an answer. 
And let me just say this parenthetically. There is not a country in the world that I know of today where ADRA cannot work. Not a country. Now, I can name you a lot of countries where the church can't go. I can, and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow or the next day. But I can tell you today that in the Muslim world, the communist world, the Buddhist world, it doesn't matter. Because of the fact that we are there with a genuine interest to work with the government, to work with the communities, to try to help people have a better way of living. The government say, fine, come on in and work with us. And so we're doing that. Now, one of the, the first major tragedy that I saw was shortly after I had accepted the presidency of ADRA. I hate to do this in front of you. I was asked to go to South America. There had been a terrible, terrible tragedy in the country of Colombia. And so they wanted me to go and see it firsthand so I could come back and uh, you know, decide what course of action we would take. So I flew into Bogota, we took a taxi, went several hours, and we finally came to this community that had been struck by a disaster. And what had happened on a Friday night High up in the mountains, heavy rainfall, heavy, heavy rainfall. And then the mountain began to break apart. And the mud slid down that mountain. And as it slid down, it accumulated speed faster and faster and faster. And without any warning, that mudslide of 20 to 30 feet in height totally wiped out a city of over 25,000 people. Totally wiped them out. Gone. And I went out and I looked and I couldn't behold, I couldn't believe it. I was walking on a cemetery where 25,000 people were buried in the mud below. I could see a part of the bank. The hospital fortune was up on a little knoll, so it had been preserved. Most of it had been preserved. But the rest of the city, you didn't see any houses. The trees had been demolished. Boulders as big as a car had been swept down the mountain. How could such destruction take place so quickly and totally decimate a community was beyond my comprehension. Now there are people in the surrounding areas that lived beyond the actual city. I talked to my colleague. I said, uh, do we have Adventist? Oh yeah, we have an Adventist church here. I said, we have a pastor? Yes, we have a pastor. I said, it's a, did the pastor, was he killed? Well, let me tell you the story. The pastor had gone out to visit some members in another church. His wife, his three children, and his mother-in-law were in the city. The city's name was Amaro. Amaro. They were there. And they lost their lives. The pastor lost his whole family. Imagine what through, went through his heart when he came back a day or two later to discover that his whole family. He could not even find where his house was. And, and they took me. They showed me around. There were certain little signs that they could tell by, by certain structures that were there as to the general vicinity of where his house was, but covered over with brown, red, mud 
It had dried enough where I could walk on it. It was still spongy. But as I walked along, I saw the shoes of a little infant. Walked a little further, I saw a little blanket for a baby. Walked on a little further, you could see bits of clothing, and that was it. Total city destroyed in a matter of seconds. What must have been going through their minds? It happened so quick. And the families that were separated, the families that, like our pastor and, and, and his family, I want to tell you, I, I went back to that site a couple of times over the next two or three years. We met with the government officials and they said, can you help us? I said, yes, we will help you. What can you do? I said, we will help you rebuild another little community. You find the place and we will raise the money to build some houses for the survivors. And so that was the agreement we worked on with the government. Now that's 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. I had someone tell, give me a report just a couple years ago. I said, Is, are we still working in that, with, that, with that project? Yes, we're still working with that project. I said, after all these years, yes. Sir. Now that's one of the wonderful things that I can tell you about ADRA. Because when I would sit down with a head of state or with a, with a cabinet member, and I would tell them about the fact that we are here to work with the people in the community. We are here to work with the government. We're not here as competitors. We're not here to create problems. We are here as your partners. We want to work with you. Well, yes, but we hear that from all the NGOs. When you hear me say NGO, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Non-government organization like ADRA, like uh, CARE, and like uh, you know, World Vision. Organizations like that, NGOs, we're called NGOs. Yeah, we hear that from NGOs. And you know it's the truth. The earthquake in Haiti, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow or the next day. You remember that? Yeah. A couple years ago? All the publicity that all these organizations got, and they raised a ton of money. How long do you think they stayed? 90 days, and they're gone. I hate to say this about my NGO community, but many of them, 90 days, they're gone. They're 90-day wonders. So we refer to them as 90-day wonders. But you know what? Adra's still there. Do you know what? Loma Linda is still there. We've made a commitment to the people. We're here with you. We're going to work with you. We're going to try to reestablish re, re some sort of, of, uh, of assistance in a, in a practical manner. So anyway, so we met with the government officials. We said, we're, gonna, we're here for the long haul. You can count on us. <sighs> no, how we can't. You can count on us. Give you my word. We have literally moved to another community about five miles away, up on a higher level. And we have rebuilt, we have built hundreds of homes. We have a little clinic there. We have a community service and we have a church that we have built in this community. Address gotten, secured these funds from all over the world, from Europe. Many of the European countries have provided funding for it. Scandinavian countries in Germany, some from the U.S., a lot from Canada. And so we rebuilt this community. And so there are thousands of people now living in this little community Amen. built by ADRA, wow. representing 
the best part, not the best part, but representing a good quality about being a Christian. That's important. So that was my first experience. And I tell you, it made an indelible impression upon my mind. What time am I supposed to quit? 10.30? Huh? 10.30? 10.45? Oh, man. So much, so much to say. So little time. My wife warned me of this. She said, you better be careful. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on and tell, tell another experience or two. Uh, Gulf War, Gulf War I. I'm sharing with you some of the most indelible impressions that hit me as the president, as your president. I'm your representative, you know that. I represented, I'm, my, my role was to represent the Seventh-day Adventist Church worldwide. 20 million believers, I was representing the church in a humanitarian way, in a formal, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that uh, could provide assistance to so many countries. And by the way, ADRA today is probably working in somewhere in 120, 125 countries. Isn't that marvelous? Think of the lives that are touched. Now, we're not the largest NGO. There are others that are bigger, and there are others that are wealthier, and there are others that get a lot more money. But I want to tell you, for the dollar, there's no one that works better than ADRA. Our overhead is lower because we don't pay these big salaries. We keep our overhead low, and so as a consequence, we're able to provide a lot more uh, to the field. But I remember, as the Gulf War was just winding down, I was asked to go to fly into Turkey because they wanted me to go get into Iraq. Uh, anyone want to volunteer to go to Iraq? No, no, no. But uh, they said, no, it's going to be secure. We'll, we'll make sure that you're secure. And, uh, and I wasn't too worried about that. So I flew into Iraq, met, I mean, flew into uh, Turkey and met some of our staff. And then we made our way up to one of the border towns right on the, on, on the border of the north. And what they wanted me to see and to experience was what was happening to a group of people that are hated by everybody in the world. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Northern part of Iraq. The Kurds. Turks. Iran. Iraq. Get out of our way. We don't need you. We don't want you. We, you know, they are unwanted. Nobody wants to deal with the Kurds. And there are reasons for it. And I'm not going to go into that right now. But Saddam Hussein had done his best to try to eradicate this group of people. And there were a lot of people that were tortured. And there were many that were killed. And during that war, they were fleeing, making their way up north and spilling over into the border of Turkey. Well, the Turks didn't want them. And so here they were caught. You had the south, unhappy, Iraq, and you had the Turks that didn't want them. And so they're caught in this no man's land. And there were thousands of refugees right on the border of Turkey and Iraq. And so the German government was kind enough to help me get in to see what was going on. They provided a helicopter. It's a nice way to travel. So they provided a helicopter. We went up and we flew over the mountainside and I saw all these little spots of, of, of green 
and little blue and light brown and the people scurrying around. Do you know what I was looking at? Shelter. That's where they lived. And in the nighttime, it was freezing. In the daytime, you sweltered. Terrible. Freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw. <coughs> Muddy. Difficult to get around. It was a mess. And I thought, how can anyone survive this? And I looked as we flew over that hillside, the mountainside, as far as I could see all these little places where people were huddling together as families, trying to keep warm during the night. That was it. In the daytime, out there sweltering. So the helicopter landed, met by some of the officials from the Kurdish group that were there. And I was met by a uh, Kurdish doctor, spoke fluent English, well-educated doctor, and he told me about the experience that he had had with, uh, with, with Saddam Hussein and, uh, you know, how he had escaped. And now he was up here on the border trying to care for the people. And he said, uh, he said Mr. Watts, I want to, I have a special tent I want you to take, take you to. Now here's this little tent, not large. Now this must have been around noon. It was unbearably hot. And... Uh, I walked into this tent and I will never forget the scene because seated on the floor, on the ground, in a semicircle in that tent were probably 12 or 15 mothers with, with infants. Mothers were all sick, all of them. And the babies were sick. And he pointed out one. You see that mother there? Yeah. He says, she, she got sick a couple days ago. Now the baby is sick. He says, we don't have any medicines. We have nothing. The world community has forgotten us. The world community has turned its back upon us. We don't get any help anywhere. We need help. We need help desperately. We need help. Pointed to another mother. You see this mother here? Yes. She was nursing a baby. The baby was skin and bones. And the mother just so emaciated, just so thin. I said, you know, what can you do? He said, well, we're doing everything we can. We, have, we use everything that we have available to try to care for them. We just don't have enough. How much longer? He said, I think by tomorrow, they'll both be gone. That was what I saw. Now, if you saw that, how would it affect you? It just tore me up. It tore me up. We had nothing. I had nothing that I could, brought, could, could bring in. And, and so uh, I, I was there for several hours, and finally I flew out and got my staff together. And I said, whatever it takes, go to the markets here, and let's buy whatever supplies we can. Let's get them in there until we can get more supplies coming in. But you know, that scene will stay with me forever. And I think to myself, if only Jesus could have been there. If only Jesus could have been there. If they could have looked into his eyes instead of mine. They could have seen his face 
They could have seen his hand reaching out to them. Because the Bible says every village, every city, he brought healing. He touched lives because his heart was breaking. So there are times when our hearts need to break. Would you agree with that? There are times when we need to be strong. There are times when we need to be sad. There are times when we need to say, Oh, Lord, please, please bring this all to an end. Because you see, my friends, it will never come to an end while we're living on this planet. It will only come to an end when our Lord returns in the clouds of heaven. I want that day to come soon. I see suffering because I still travel. I go to Asia. I go to other parts of the world because my heart compels me to do it. I want to do it. I feel like I can still make a contribution, so I do it. But I see these experiences and I think about what I've shared with you this morning and I say, oh Lord, please come quickly. Please come quickly. So God is good. Amen. God uses us. Remember that. God uses us. And we can look for opportunities wherever we are. We don't have to go to Iraq. We don't have to go to Haiti. We don't have to go to Bolivia. Wherever we are, Colombia, wherever we are, in our own neighborhoods, if we look, we'll find people who are hurting. I would venture to say that we can find people who are hurting even in our own churches. Would that be true? In our own churches. So God wants you. He wants you to be a partner with him to bring healing, to bring hope. And by so doing, we'll be fulfilling. We're fulfilling what Jesus has asked us to do. To be his voice, his feet, and his hands. God bless you. Have a good day. Tomorrow, we're just getting started. I just had to look through my outline. Man, I had to, I had to leave out a whole bunch of stuff today. So I'll try to work it in tomorrow. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, I, I, we ended up on a good note. And so uh, I'll give you a few more minutes. Let's have, uh, do I have a prayer? Should I have a prayer? Father, we know that we live in a world that is suffering. Everywhere we look, abroad or here, the tensions that exist on, even on the borders of our country. People are hurting, people are suffering. And we think of what's happening in the Middle East today, the lives that will be lost. And we say, Father, oh, we pray somehow all of this must come to an end. But we know it's not going to happen right away. It'll only happen when Jesus comes to put an end to disease and death and destruction and despair. 
But we're here, Father. We're here. We are your ambassadors. And I pray that you will use us in some small way. Use us to make a difference in the lives of those around us, in our own families, in our own church, who are hurting emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. May we reach out with hands of love and of compassion, endeavoring to make the world a better place until our Lord comes, for we ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to refer some books to you. Uh, the bookstore, is the manager in here today? Uh, there's, a, there's a book that I asked to be delivered. It's called Pursuing the Passion of Jesus. Uh, talking about some of these topics, not the stories so much, but that's written by Dwight Nelson. It's an excellent book. If they have, a, if they have some copies here, the book, be sure and get it. Then on another non-related topic, it's a book that I wrote a number of years ago called Escape from Saigon. Some of you may be aware of the fact that I was caught in Saigon, as has been mentioned, uh, when the, as the city and the country was about to fall and the airport was closed. Now, how do we get out of there? How do we get our people out of there? That's an excellent book. I bought it last year. Oh, you got it? You read it? I read it. Excellent. How many have read it? Oh, there's a few of you. Well, the book is back here, and if you get a copy, bring it to me and I'll autograph it. <laughs> little note to you. At any rate, uh, I'm not speaking on that. My, my topic here this week has nothing to do with Escape from Saigon. I want you to know that. I'm just promoting a little, it's an obscene little uh, selling point here. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a good book. Yes. I just, I just was curious, when you say that Adver remains in a place, what capacity do they take once they've been established? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, by the way, on Thursday, I'm going to end early or take a block in between somewhere in there to answer questions. So if you've got some questions, make a little note of it, and I will try to answer questions because I can tell you, I've done town hall meetings all over North America, and I can tell you what the number two or three of the first four or five questions that are going to be asked, uh, at least then. But I will try to answer questions. The question was, what kind of, uh, what kind of presence does ADRA maintain after a period of years? Uh, we are there until the projects are self-sustaining. What we want, what ADRA desires as much as anything, is to help people get to the point where they can stand on their feet and provide for themselves. That's development. And that's the first word. Adventist what? Development. development and relief agency. So development, it's education, it's training. Mothers, people in the villages. Uh, we, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you about it. I'm gonna talk to you about what some of the things that, that Adra's very, very much involved in these re recent uh, years. And I think that there's supposed to be someone here from, from Adra. Come on up here a minute. I want you to meet this young lady. I'm working for her. Uh, <clears throat> Fifteen years ago, I'd have been her boss, but now she's my boss. This is Lauren. Lauren is from Adra and is going to be here during this week. And we have materials. We're going to have a little exhibit somewhere or a little table somewhere, yeah. right? Is there anything you want to say to the folk? Would you like to take over tomorrow? Huh? Well, I don't know about that. You could do it. Um, she could do it. She's had some good experiences, by the way. Which countries have you gone to recently? Recently? Um, You've well, been to Haiti, haven't you? I just came back from Haiti. 
Okay. Just came back from Haiti. So when I talk about Haiti, maybe I'll have you come up and give okay. a little, little up to date on yeah. that. So but I, we're still there, aren't we? We are. We have um, a number of projects there. And we've been there since 85. Water and sanitation and um, housing projects. Since 85. Yeah. We've been in Haiti since 1985, folks. But I can say a word to the development question. Um, um, so can I hold you while you hold this? <laughs> sure. So um, we oftentimes, our um, initial entrance into a country is with a disaster. And so we'll respond to a disaster and then stay long-term in the country through our development projects. Mm -hmm. And so recently in the Philippines, you know, we had, there was just great devastation in communities where um, they lost their livelihoods, they lost their homes, they lost everything. So we, we look for ways that we can rebuild the entire community. We find alternate um, ways of income for these fishermen who've lost their livelihoods. We, we help build um, their homes and provide clean water sources. And so long term, and the majority of our projects are development projects. So we have water projects, education projects, um, housing and, and livelihoods and all kinds of things. And we'll, we'll talk more about that throughout the week, um, share with you some of the current projects and um, some of the ways that the address is impacting the world through them. But um, yeah, we're just very, very thankful for all of you and for your interest in, in the work of ADRA. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, she will be a good resource. I'm going to be following up in the next few days talking about the development. Today I, was, I just wanted to share some of the initial experiences that, 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 that hit me. But Lauren will be here. Feel free to talk to her. She has some materials back there she can share with you. And uh, we, we just want you to to learn as much as you can this week about the work and ministry of ADRA. Because remember this, ADRA belongs to you. It's your organization. It's your organization. It serves the church. And uh, so Lauren will be here this week. Another good thing about Lauren is that uh, she's a graduate of Union College. <laughs> All right, Lauren. Thank you. God bless you. And we'll be answering questions then during the week.